0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Business News. In this episode, we look at the global vaccine race. We speak to an expert, Arnaud Bernet, the head of Shaping the Future of Health and Healthcare at the World Economic Forum. He sets out who is likely to get the vaccine and why we must prepare for coping with COVID-19 in our midst at least until 2023. Also coming up. With the World Spotlight on Mental Health, we hear how South Africans are coping in the era of COVID-19 with Dr Saran Motilal of Discovery Vitality. First, the COVID-19 news making global headlines. South Africa is number 11 on the list of countries hardest hit by COVID-19. At the start of this week, just under 18,000 people are reported as having died of COVID-19 in South Africa. And just under 700,000 cases of COVID-19 have been reported by the government. The US has the highest number of deaths at 215,000. The new coronavirus may remain infectious for weeks on banknotes, glass and other common surfaces. That's according to research by Australia's top biosecurity laboratory. Scientists at the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness show that SARS-CoV-2 is extremely robust, surviving for 28 days on smooth surfaces such as glass found on mobile phone screens and plastic banknotes. It survives at a temperature of around 20 degrees Celsius. The scientists compare this with 17 days' survival for the flu virus. Virus survival declined to less than a day at 40 degrees Celsius on some surfaces, according to the study published in Virology Journal. A co-author of the study, Debbie Eagles, is quoted as saying that the results show that SARS-CoV-2 can remain infectious on surfaces for long periods of time, which reinforces the need for good practices such as regular hand-washing and cleaning surfaces. The scientists note that the coronavirus is transmitted mostly through direct contact with an infected person, especially the virus-laden particles they emit, while coughing, sneezing, speaking, singing and even breathing. SARS-CoV-2 may also contaminate surfaces when these particles settle. They say the persistence on glass is an important finding, given that touchscreen devices such as mobile phones, bank ATMs, supermarkets, self-service checkouts and airport check-in kiosks are high-touch surfaces which may not be regularly cleaned and they therefore pose a transmission risk. Before SARS-CoV-2 was declared a pandemic, China had already started decontaminating its paper currency, which suggests there have been concerns over the transmission of this disease via paper banknotes, the researchers say. Could the BCG vaccine protect against COVID-19? That's a question many South Africans have been asking because we've received the BCG vaccine as infants and our death rate in the country relative to the number of cases is lower than many other hotspots in the world. The University of Exeter has reported that it is leading the UK arm of a trial called the BCG vaccination to reduce the impact of COVID-19 in healthcare workers, also called BRACE. The UK joins study centres in Australia, the Netherlands, Spain and Brazil in the largest trial of its kind. Together, the trial will recruit more than 10,000 healthcare workers. Participants will be given either the BCG vaccine or a placebo. The BCG vaccine is given to more than 100 million babies worldwide each year to protect against TB, note the researchers. In the UK, routine BCG vaccination was stopped in 2005 because of low rates of TB in the general population. Bloomberg reports that Poland may declare an emergency if cases keep rising. India has reported just under 70,000 additional coronavirus cases, bringing its total number of infections to about 7.12 million. While the daily rate of cases appears to be slowing, India is expected to surpass the U.S. as the worst hit nation in the world by as early as next month. Bloomberg says the country's death toll has risen to just under 110,000. China's Qingdao has reported more cases. The city in Shandong province said on Sunday that it found three asymptomatic cases linked to a hospital which treats COVID-19 patients coming from abroad. Expanded testing of hospital patients and staff then found another nine infections. More testing is underway, and the city aims to cover the entire 9.5 million population within five days, the local health commission has said. The UK is set to tighten COVID-19 restrictions. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is set to announce a new tiered system of alert levels that will see millions of people subjected to more stringent curbs on their everyday lives. Blomberg says that Donald Trump has said that once you recover from COVID-19, you are immune. So you don't have a president who has to hide in his basement like his opponent. Trump is quoted as saying this on Fox News Channel's Sunday Morning Futures.
1: Inside COVID nineteen,
0: Next, we speak to Arnold Bernhardt, head of Shaping the Future of Health and Healthcare at the World Economic Forum about the vaccine race. Mr. Bernhardt, tell us a bit about your role with the WEF
1: yes uh yes Jackie thank you very much and uh, thanks for the opportunity so my role is to actually uh, oversee the platform on the future of health and healthcare, which means actually uh, running a number of initiatives that lend themselves to public private collaboration or coalitions and we typically do that as we connect our industry partners that are in the number of uh, one hundred uh, large multinational uh, global companies with uh, policymakers, but also civil society participants, policymakers, and uh, international organizations, which is really what the forum has been doing for the past 50 years, uh, since it was born in Davos in 1970. My role, for instance, uh, is about promoting the creation of new instruments, uh, coalitions. And you know that in the field of healthcare, for instance, the forum is very proud to have given birth to uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccination and Immunization that was born at the World Economic Forum in 2000. And more recently, uh, I was personally involved in the uh, shaping and the crafting and the launch of another coalition that is defining in the current period. That is a Coalition for Epidemics Preparedness Innovation, uh, which was launched in uh, 2017 in Davos and is currently advancing four vaccines in phase three in the combat against the virus.
0: So the World Economic Forum is playing a key role in in making sure that the world gets a coronavirus vaccine as quickly as possible.
1: Yes, that's absolutely correct. And not only uh, making sure that the science is going to progress much faster than usual, but also making sure that the volumes of vaccines will be available in sufficient quantities for everyone to access vaccine in an equitable and, uh, and fair fashion.
0: We hear that the international community is working like never before to produce a vaccine. How have you been facilitating this process?
1: Well, our partners, you need to know that major vaccines manufacturers are partnering with the forum. And that's really uh, those partners that are actually accelerating the development of vaccines in a fashion that is quite unprecedented. You know, we're really talking about condensing 10 years of research in a period of 12 to 18 months.
0: That's quite extraordinary. How is that actually happening?
1: Well, you know, I think the first thing is we got the sequence of the vaccine fairly rapidly. You know, it took two weeks to get from China the genetic code of the virus. If you look back to other crises in the past, including SARS, it took many months. So I think that's where we saw the first acceleration. We also have seen new technologies that are emerging, such as RNA or DNA-based vaccines. Our partner, Moderna, it took them 42 days to move from the vaccine design to human testing. That's quite unprecedented as well. But irrespectively of the platforms, vaccine development platforms, and generally speaking, you have four different techniques to create a vaccine. Irrespectively of those techniques, you've seen also a compression of clinical phases, like phase one, for instance, that is typically a small study in healthy people where safety and immune responses of the vaccine are being tested at different doses. Normally, it takes two years. In the current period, it takes three months to run a phase one. And then you have the phase two, where you actually increase uh, the number of uh, individuals being administered the vaccines, but you compare those individuals with, uh, with a blinded placebo group. And you do that at different dosages and uh, different vaccine schedules. Uh, Typically, in a clinical research pathway that is being run in peacetime, it takes eight months. Now we're talking about two or three months. Uh, It it typically takes two or three years. Now it takes eight months in the current period. Sorry, and and that phase two, which is being run on hundreds of individuals, can either also be merged with phase three. That is typically a much larger cohort of patients and individuals uh, being recruited. So merging your phase two and your phase three also provides for acceleration. And when you think about a phase three, you know, a phase three can be anywhere between 30,000 individuals in multiple locations, multiple regions, to 60,000 individuals. That's a very, very big uh, undertaking for the uh, innovators of vaccines.
0: We see that Russia has produced a vaccine and approved a vaccine. Where does that vaccine stand in these trials?
1: Well, Russia took a, a different approval pathway for the Gamaleya vaccine. Uh, they decided that they had enough proof points at the end of the phase two to actually start administering the vaccine on population in parallel to running the phase three. This is quite unique. Uh, this is quite a, a recognition, apparently, by the Russian authorities that the uh, uh, the vaccine platform that was used by, by, by Gamaleya has already, had already been proven to be safe in other situations, like Ebola and MERS. So I think they placed the degree of confidence at the end of phase two on that the vaccine, that the, 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 the vaccine vector, the viral vector of the vaccine had already been proven to be safe, and they're also using a, ve- a vector that is a human vector, that is basically the vector of the common cold. So they think that uh, the risks are uh, linked to uh, accelerating the deployment under emergency use authorization is controllable.
0: Can you just explain this concept of a vector in layman's terms? Because obviously most of us don't really, we had no knowledge of viruses and epidemiology, and now the whole world is is an expert on this. But what is a vector?
1: You know, you have multiple ways actually to create an antibody response as you uh, get the body uh, to recognize a virus. Either you are going to use a virus that is a live virus, but with uh, attenuated potential, or you could use uh, elements of the virus, of the spike protein, and and that's where you are going to uh, create your vaccine, whereby the body will recognize some elements of that spike protein and create antibodies. Or you can use an over-approach that has been very proven, that is using an over-virus uh, with benign effects, such as, for instance, the one of the common cold, and include DNA elements of the coronavirus into that vector. That's what we call the vector. So if you look into companies like um, CanSino in China, Johnson & Johnson in America, uh, AstraZeneca in the UK, or Gamalaya, they typically use the same type of vectors, which are typically the the virus of the common cold.
0: So should the rest of the world be learning from Russia then?
1: The industry has been fairly clear that they would not recommend to actually deliver vaccines and get to approving a vaccine before a phase three is being delivered to the regulators. So I think... The Russian approach would probably, despite all the reasons why Russia is doing it, which, again, I don't want to carry any judgment on, the Russian approach would probably not be one that regulators in, uh, in Europe or in the US or in many other parts of the world would support.
0: And Russia is exporting this vaccine to countries like Brazil and Egypt. And so many countries in Africa and sort of traditionally the less developed countries have warned that they desperately need a vaccine and may be left behind in the vaccine race. What is your view on that?
1: Well, you, you know, even if uh, the Gamaleya vaccine, by the way, I think I would want to clarify that uh, Russia is also in parallel to uh, administering uh, first doses is also running a phase three. So at some point in time, you will also get clarity on the outcome of the phase three, so there is one thing that everybody needs to understand: the success against COVID is not going to come from one vaccine. It's going to come from multiple vaccines. We will need two or three successful candidates. There are, and successful candidates may emerge over time. Maybe the first vaccines are not going to be the most potent ones. Maybe we get to fifty uh, percent efficacy with the first vaccines being approved. Maybe we get to sixty or seventy percent. If everything turns to be very, very positive, but you know, you have vaccines that have 90% potency and we should shoot for such a level of efficacy over time. Better vaccines may emerge over time. And then, you know, vaccines are going to also have potentially a different level of efficacy depending on the, on the type of population you look at. For instance, the Gamalaya vaccine. Is using an adenovirus five vaccine with certain type of common cold, and we will need to uh, actually understand how this is going to work on African populations. Because when in uh, the U.S. or in Europe, we think that people have met this Ad5 virus before. For 30% of the global of the of, of those populations in Europe or in the U.S., we think that in Africa, actually 80% of the African population have already met this vector. Hence the question of whether or not an AD5 vaccine would be appropriate for African population because it could create resistance if you have already met the vector.
0: Now, in South Africa, the AstraZeneca trial is underway and there's a lot of hope in that trial. What are your views on that particular vaccine and the vectors that are being used there?
1: I'm very hopeful. I mean, um, I think that AstraZeneca and Oxford have, have had so far uh, very good results, from what I can tell, which is, and when I say result, I mean the combination of antibody level uh, from vaccination data well above the levels we can see in people that have had the disease, so that's a good thing, but also additional T cell response that provides from an additional boost. So the clinical trials at the end of phase two for AstraZeneca are quite convincing, I need to say. And I think we will learn more in the next weeks about the phase three. What I like with the AstraZeneca approach is indeed that they are going uh, to test those 40,000 individuals in a very, very clinically robust fashion, but also in, in multiple geographies that takes into account the different DNA profile of ethnicities.
0: And your research, what does it suggest about Africa and particularly South Africa, if you have any details, how do you think that Africa is going to be able to cope with COVID-19 if one vaccine weren't to be enough?
1: I think now you're talking about a different uh, topic that is not about, is there going to be a good vaccine? I think we need to be hopeful that there will be two or three uh, before mid-2021. Are you talking about how do we access them at scale? when arguably, you know, you can make the argument that with a two-dose vaccines and, you know, seven or eight billion to be vaccinated on Earth, uh, you would need 15 billion doses. And that's a huge, huge, huge volume of vaccines that's never happened before. So the question of whether or not there will be sufficient volumes for countries that have not been involved in the cutting of bilateral agreements with vaccine innovators is an open question. South Africa has uh, secured some of those volumes via bilateral agreements. Many other countries in Africa don't have any guaranteed source of supply. So I think that's where we at the forum are very much in support of uh, Gavi and CEPI because what Gavi and CEPI have been creating is actually a global facility that currently has been subscribed by 157 countries, a global facility that is actually going to provide for advanced purchase commitment to manufacturers and in turn will secure a large amount of doses to benefit low- and middle-income countries.
0: You mentioned as well that this has never happened at this speed before. So what does this mean for other diseases in the future and the shape of science now? Has this changed science irrevocably?
1: There are a lot of good things that have been happening. Collaboration between innovators, exchange of data. I mentioned the DNA profile of the virus being exchanged very fast. Uh, You see also the full engagement of regulators in the design of clinical trial protocols. So it's not like you wait to see a data package. You actually, as a regulator, have a seat at the table. You sit with the manufacturer and you help them design something that uh, when it's going to be introduced with the support of data, you are comfortable with the approach. So, um, and then there is, like I mentioned, the compression of clinical phases, merging some of them, which is also quite new and can be replicated in the past. What has been happening also is that we've seen that uh, during the clinical pathway development uh, time, actually, those innovators are also scaling up the manufacturing capacity. And we talk about large bioreactors, uh, you talk also about scaling the fill and finish part of the of the manufacturing process, you, you think about securing sufficient amount of glass vials in parallel to the clinical effort. All of that is shortcutting the time to get the vaccine quite a bit. And I would never underestimate also the fact that in the current period, we're leveraging a lot of the pre-existing research that was conducted for Ebola and MERS. For instance, on those vectors I was mentioning before, they are those vectors that have been utilised before for the development of Ebola vaccines, for instance, by J&J.
0: The World Economic Forum mentions that while genetic platforms are promising and fast, there are currently no such vaccines approved for human use. What is a genetic platform and why is the World Economic Forum looking at that so closely? We
1: look at genetic platform because it's... uh, it's obviously totally new. Uh, it's, uh, you will not, at, with mRNA vaccine, you will not ex- inject any portion of the vaccine, right? But you will send an RNA message to the cells, your cells, so that they can start actually themselves adjust and, uh, and produce antibodies. So you don't need virus fragments. What is interesting with a technology of that nature is it it is pretty safe in a way because you never inject any portion of the virus.
0: Mr. Bernard. before we close off, you mentioned that if we're lucky, we're kind of going to see vaccines coming out by mid-2021. That suggests that COVID-19 is going to become a feature of our lives for longer than we would like. Do you have any projections or forecasts for how COVID-19 is going to look In two years' time, three years' time, five years' time?
1: That's an excellent question, I think. The question of how long the vaccine protection will last, for instance, is quite an unknown. And uh, you need to understand that many of those clinical trials in the phase three, they have endpoints after one year or two years. And those endpoints are actually about how much immunity does the, the vaccine provide after one year or two years. This will not, we will not know before those trials are being run until an end. So, there is a scenario whereby you need to revaccinate populations every year. This is something that we really don't know. In that context, I think this pandemic would become endemic, like the Cetone flu in a way. There is a scenario where vaccinations would provide from an immune response that lasts for a much longer period, in which case you can get to actually progressively eliminate the circulation of the virus because vaccination plus infection in a combination would provide from herd immunity. But realistically also, if you think that we need to vaccinate the large number of individuals I was mentioning before, there is a very good study by UNICEF suggesting that it's not going to happen before mid-2023, the time for the volumes to be available for populations at large. So, we will have to start by vaccinating healthcare workers. Uh, we will have to start vaccinating also the most vulnerable population, including, but not limited to the elderly, uh, also the chronic disease patients. So, at that point in time, I think we will see the, the disease in much better control because the fatality rate will drop in, uh, in the context where the most vulnerable will be protected. And the, but there could be virus circulation until the very tail end of the period I was mentioning.
0: You've been listening to Mr. Arnold Bernat, Head of Shaping the Future of Health and Healthcare at the World Economic Forum. Coming up, Dr. Saran Motilal of Discovery Vitality speaks to us about how South Africans are coping in the era of COVID-19, what the data is telling us about the state of mental health in the country and where people can get advice and help if they need it.
1: Inside COVID-19, from News.
0: Dr Motilal, we see a growing body of anecdotal evidence to confirm what many of us suspect, which is that the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns have been very bad for our mental health. So we've seen in Canada that people are drinking more. We see a report that suicides are on the up in Malawi. What is your data telling us about South Africa?
2: I think the first thing that we need to kind of establish is that it's hard to get mental health and mental well-being insights, especially because this is an ongoing pandemic and we're seeing, you know, ongoing sort of ramifications of it. Um, So the best evidence that we can kind of look at is, you know, comparing sort of data from this year to previous years and, and starting to tease out what those relationships and what those insights are starting to show. What we can see, and maybe to build on your point, is there has been a lot of anecdotal evidence. So we've seen reports of increased rates of mental strain and distress. From what we've seen and what we've noticed is that, you know, if we look at search topics or what people are looking for online, oftentimes we're seeing this increase and in this bump in sort of terms that are more linked to mental distress and to increased levels of mental strain. And that sort of makes sense, you know, with the ongoing headlines or or topics around, um, you know, the stress that 2020 has brought on. It sort of does intuitively make sense that we see these increased levels of mental distress. From our side, um, you know, what we see is mental health, even pre-COVID, has always been a concern. It's always been an area that we're starting to see, especially over more recent years, that there's increasing rates of incidence, which is new cases reported in the mental health spectrum, as well as prevalence, which is total cases in our population. And we see that those numbers increase year on year. And our data shows this that that levels increase continuously. For 2020, we don't have the full year picture yet. So we really will have to wait till the end of the year to get that nice research data on it. But already what we're starting to see is those increased signs of mental strain and mental distress coming through in some of the data that we see in discovery and in vitality.
0: And what does that actually look like? What is your data telling you about what that mental strain looks like for people?
2: As I said, we need to look at the picture for the whole year. But what we're starting to see is increased sort of levels of health anxiety of people mentioning or or looking out for ways to help manage stress, anxiety, things like fear comes up quite a bit. So we're starting to see reports and and sort of evidence showing that people are engaging or, or having to engage with these topics more frequently. What we see in terms of mental health claims, what we've seen for the last few years is that mental health claims has steadily increased year on year. It's been a a marginal increase, but it's been an increase nonetheless. And it seems that those trends are still happening. So that increase is still being noted year on year. This year, we introduced the mental well-being assessments into the Vitality program. And what we've seen is, you know, we've had more than 57,000 assessments completed already. About 72% of those assessments score in well-managed categories. So what these assessments look at is they're screening assessments. And we screen for things like depression, anxiety, subjective mental well-being, resilience, alcohol use, as well as a sleep screening assessment. What that means is that 28% of people are reporting some sort of difficulty in one of these areas where either they would, you know, further assistance might benefit them or at least access to more tools and resources. I think that's a significant proportion. You know, 28% is quite a high number, especially given that we've seen also in this year that there's been a decrease in access to, to services, mental health services. Whether those are virtual or in person, what we've seen is that Unfortunately, because of the year, because of what has happened, services have been used yet. But still, if we're able to tease out that, you know, up to 28 percent of people are reporting some sort of stress or distress, you know, that's a significant proportion.
0: Very worrying. And what is the difference between being clinically depressed and depressed for natural reasons? I mean, isn't it inevitable that we're all feeling a bit depressed about COVID because our jobs are on the line we don't see our friends you know lot many lost opportunities particularly for younger people you know maybe they can't play the sports they'd like to play they've lost out on job opportunities
2: so when we talk about clinical depression or even clinical anxiety these are areas or these are, are illnesses that are diagnosed by professional healthcare professionals. They have a range of symptoms that affect people's level of functioning across different areas of their lives. So, if we take depression, for example, what this is at least two weeks of significant changes in mood um, that also can affect other areas of your life, such as appetite, sleep, energy, concentration, things like that. And that's significant, those symptoms, those, they really, they can affect either your social, your occupational, you know, your personal lives, and it starts to filter through and, and have that effect. And as I said, these diagnoses need to be made by healthcare professionals. In terms of the year so far, though, and, you know, feeling these increased signs of mental strain or stress, or maybe you just have this sort of feeling of a simmering anxiety, for lack of a better term, oftentimes these are... Are normal emotions that we can expect, especially in a year like this where there's been a pandemic and so many ramifications thereof. However, saying that, you know, it's still important that we not only know or learn more about our mental health, but also about our mental well-being, which is, you know, how do we function in in a year like this? You know, how do we build up resilience? So maybe, um, maybe we're not clinically depressed, but, you know, there are other things in terms of how do we manage stress? How do we maybe enhance our resilient mechanisms, our coping strategies, so that we can get through sort of these difficult periods in our lives as well? And I mean, that can combine going and seeking extra help and, and seeking healthcare professionals. But what we've shown in our data and what we've seen in terms of, sort of reporting psychological distress or, you know, in mental strain, things like, and some of the practical things that, that make a huge difference that we've seen are things like engaging in physical activity healthy eating so so eating you know a more mediterranean based diet which is more plant based for example all of these things have shown that they offer some well there is at least an association with reduced reporting of psychological distress Interestingly, when we looked at physical activity, we saw that those who engage in moderate and high levels of physical activity have up to four times less reported psychological distress compared to those who do low or no physical activity. And I think that's a huge association. As I said, we'll have to tease these out more and and look at them a little bit further. But already starting to see those strong associations really, really is really interesting and potentially, um, you know, something that we can hone onto and promote in terms of trying to build up, I guess, our mental health and our mental well-being.
0: Dr. Motilal, one of the screens or assessments that is offered by Vitality involves substance use screening and awareness. Now, South Africa had this very strict lockdown with alcohol bans and tobacco Mm -hmm. bans, what is your data telling us about whether South Africans have weaned themselves off substances or not?
2: So the area that our screening looks at is alcohol use. These assessments were launched in April this year. And as I mentioned, we're starting to see very, very early signs of it. But the one thing that maybe I can allude to is at this stage, we don't have year-on-year comparison data in terms of that particular screen. What we do see is people are engaging with it pretty well. And, you know, what we've noticed generally in the year, but again, it's more based on external research, is that the effects, I guess, of the lockdown and whatnot have had an effect in terms of consumption of alcohol in the country. But unfortunately, from our side, we would have to analyze that data for a little bit longer and to have a little bit more of a longitudinal spread to actually understand what the full impact of that was. We do recognize that, you know, substance use and alcohol use, not only in South Africa and globally, um, can be concerning. And, and it's, that's why we want to try and offer support and, you know, increase awareness and knowledge, especially around these topics, because they're so important to our society. At this stage, though, we don't we can't tease out yet what the effects have been. Hopefully there's been a lot of positive effects, but I would need to look at it a lot more before I can actually give you a concrete answer on that question.
0: And then let's look at resilience. You've put quite a lot of emphasis on resilience and it's a hot topic at the moment. Tell us what resilience is and how can we build it, particularly among younger people who have been finding this perhaps even more difficult than their parents?
2: Again, it's been so interesting. I think over the last few weeks, we've really seen this spike in people's interest in terms of psychological resilience. Maybe just, uh, you know, it makes sense. 2020 has been a difficult year, but people are engaging with the topic more and also trying to find out more about it and what it is. So resilience in very, very short terms is basically a person's ability to bounce back or to recover from stress in a slightly more detailed definition it's the process of adapting well in the face of adversity trauma threats or even you know significant sources of stress so what we offer in the vitality mental well-being assessments is we share the brief resilience scale which is one of the most studied and best uh, resilience scale, and basically, what it aims to screen for is an individual's um, ability to bounce back or to recover from stress. And with that, if you're able to learn more about your own resilience and the and the components of resilience, which include things like self-regulation, helping others, optimism, a sense of humor, your social supports, your meaning or your purpose in life, you know, how you feel about your abilities, your personal competence, your ability to be resourceful. All of these things feed into your overall resilience. And what we aim to do is firstly share this and and help raise the awareness that these components of resilience are not necessarily innate. Um, they can be built upon, they can be grown and and Each one of us has the ability to kind of work on these different components of our resilience and and in a way in our overall resilience. And what we have been actually able, again, to tease out from our data looking at resilience is Again, uh, there are a few associations with resilience. So, those who, for example, in in, in our program, in the Vitality program, those who are more engaged, so have maybe gold or diamond status, tend to report slightly higher levels of resilience. Those who engage in more physical activity, again, report higher resilience. Members who have more chronic conditions, tend to report lower levels of resilience. However, what's interesting is even if you have higher chronic conditions, those who engage in more physical activity, we see a a rise in their resilience levels. Um, So the effect of physical activity still remains. And again, interestingly, we see men report higher levels of resilience than women. I don't have the reasons for that. It's just an association we've seen. But nevertheless, we still see between men and women that as in each cohort, as physical activity increases, so does that reported level of resilience. So there seems to be a very strong association with resilience and, again, engaging in physical activity.
0: I wonder if that's because we've seen reports that women have been affected particularly badly in the COVID-19 pandemic with millions of women losing their jobs, You know, single-woman households. Do you think that plays into it at all, or do you have, not have any evidence as to why there might be this discrepancy between men and women?
2: It's hard for us to tell. I mean, all we can really tease out from our data is is the reported levels of resilience. But I think, in terms of the reporting differences and sort of these differences in the associations, is probably quite a few reasons. I think you know we have seen so many reports of the hard effect that it's had of uh, COVID-19 has had, especially on women, especially on women led households, you know, the economic effects that have been a double whammy for many uh, women in our society. It could be also down to maybe perhaps different ways that we talk about resilience, you know, different societal constructs between the way men and women perceive resilience. For example, there could be uh, many factors as to Remember again, this data is, is self-reported, so there could be different ways that we read, interpret, or even answer questions that could affect these associations. But it definitely is interesting that see this, that we see that gap between men and women, and definitely this is something that we would like to explore more, just to understand why, what what is that difference, and and if so, you know what can we do? You know, how can we help build resilience both for men and women? And what ways might work better for whoever is reporting, you know, this lower resilience?
0: So, Dr. Motila, tell us a bit more about what Discovery does to help its members when there is a problem. So we've, we've discussed that you have these assessments. What happens if you see that there might be a problem? At what point do you have to call a specialist? And given that many of these specialists aren't able to work, what have you been advising your members?
2: Maybe I can make a little bit of a distinction. So at Vitality what we do is we offer the screening assessments and in no way are the screening assessments diagnostic. So they're they're clinically validated tools and they help to pick up and potentially help to aid the diagnostic process, but in order to make a diagnosis for any of these, whether it's depression, anxiety, sleep-related problems or even decreased resilience, substance use, you know, that's where you would need a healthcare professional. So what we aim to do from the vitality side of things is provide our members access to these assessments. Our members are encouraged to complete their assessments. Members are even rewarded just for completion. Um, the results are, are not important. Really, what we want people to do is engage with the assessments, read the information that's linked to them, which is around health awareness, learning more about these conditions and learning more about uh, mental health in general. If A member reports significant distress according to the categorizations of the clinically validated tools. There are a few options open to them. So we have a a discovery dedicated SADAG line. SADAG is the South African group for depression and anxiety and luckily we have is a partnership where there's a line that members either receive a call back from SADAG just to, you know, find out if everything's okay and if they need further assistance or counseling or, or even a referral, as well as, you know, even members who don't necessarily report such high levels of distress, that line is open to them so that they can contact them, find out more information. Even if you need uh, more assistance or, you know, you, you need more information, that line is available. And, you know, there are trained counselors on the other side who can uh, provide that assistance. Depending on on results, we recommend repeating the assessments either twice a year or sometimes up to once every three months, depending on the level of assistance that's required. And then to speak maybe a little bit about the discovery health side of things, that's where we have our more comprehensive mental health programs, which look to provide support, access to psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors in the space. I know that right now uh, what we have is a really comprehensive virtual consultation process to try and mitigate for some of the the risks and you know some of the discomfort people might be feeling in terms of in person consultations and. That's been re- working really well and helped to bridge that gap in access quite a bit. The mental health program in Discovery Health has recently, there's been a lot of upgrading and enhancements to really ensure that uh, what we see in terms of this increasing mental health strain um, is catered for. So, so there, there are a lot of support structures and systems in place, depending on the level of need of a member. Tomorrow we're launching or we're holding a vitality webinar. We're speaking a lot more on these topics, going into data a lot more in detail, um, and just going through some of the strategies to increase not only resilience, but how you know how do we decrease mental health uh, strain and burden that you know people might be going through at the moment. Uh, We have a really esteemed panel. You know, we have uh, uh, guests from South Africa and internationally, professors in the field as well as mental health advocates such as Bonnie Mbouli and Riyadh Musa who are going to be present. So I really just want to encourage people to join the webinar, which will be uh, tomorrow evening. That's the evening of the 13th of October. You can find the registration link on the Vitality website. You just look for the Mental Wellbeing Vitality webinar, and you'll see registration links for two sessions. The first session is more general. The second session is a little bit more healthcare-focused, but it's absolutely open to everyone for both sessions.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Saran Motilal, clinical wellness specialist and medical doctor at Vitality. And that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19. Until next week.
2: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.